And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome to the Inspired Service podcast. In our quest to put a human face to public service, we are really privileged to be joined by Shannon Sarton the executive director of the U.S. Digital Service at the Department of Health and Human Services. And also, Shannon is one of the finalists for the Samuel J. Heyman Service to America Awards, which are run by the Partnership for Public Service in recognition of extraordinary achievement in public service. We're talking to Shannon today because she's a shining example of the kind of real impact that can be achieved in government. And she and her team have succeeded in making it easier for Medicare patients to access their electronic health records and for doctors to get paid for the quality of care they provide, not just the quantity. The former chief technology officer of the United States, Anish Chopra, called Shannon's work probably the single biggest achievement she's seen in the public sector in years. So we are really glad that Shannon has made the time to join us today. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to start with something very surface level. You describe yourself on Twitter as a government geek. I want to ask you, who is Shannon Sarton? How, how do you identify yourself? That's so funny. I mean, so first and foremost, I'm a mom. I have uh, an amazing 11-year-old daughter who the other day buzzed her head, was wearing an I Walk the Line shirt and Birkenstocks. And I was like, yeah, I did okay. <laughs> so first and foremost, that's me. I think secondly, you know, I definitely describe myself as sitting in this intersection of government, technology, and healthcare. And that's beyond just work. It's beyond the thing that pays my bills, right? It's really at my core. Um, and when we talk a little bit about my journey, I think you'll see where that comes from. But my overall kind of space in this life is really about making sure that we leave the world a better place when we're done here. And I think that so much of that comes in that, that intersection and making people's lives easier and better. And you do that both through government and healthcare, and it's really empowered by technology. And let's get into that journey because it is fascinating. At surface level, doesn't look like you were always driven to technology and to healthcare. Even if we just look at your university education, you were studying Italian at the University of Arizona. That doesn't scream healthcare and it doesn't scream technology. So what happened? Yeah, definitely not. I think that as most of us do, we try really hard to not be our parents. A really fascinating part about me is actually that my mother is a physician turned health informaticist who was at one point in time the CIO of a federal agency. But I spent a lot of my time, I think, wanting to explore other ways of having impact, wanting to not be just my mother's daughter, but really carve out kind of my own existence. And I think the Italian degree is a byproduct of another fascinating thing, which is I actually didn't graduate high school. I only went to a single year of high school and I started college when I was 16. Wow. So at that point in time, I didn't know what I wanted to study, but I had been living abroad in Italy. I was fluent in Italian and I knew I needed a degree. I had this amazing professor who sat me down one day and he said, I know that you don't know what you want to do, but don't major in anything that has the word studies at the end of it because you'll never get a job. You need a language <laughs> or a hard <laughs> It was really funny because I was, I just was, I was motivated, right? Like I really wanted to learn, but I didn't know 
what I wanted. And so for me, Italian, studying Italian gave me this ability to get great grades and study something that I love, but expand it. So her was speaking fluent Italian, so I could go off and read whatever literature or watch whatever films and do whatever analysis I wanted kind of under that auspice. So it really kind of just gave me this amazing background of language and arts and people interactions and history. And it's definitely a fascinating journey to technology, but it's a huge part of my story. And clearly I was a, a hacker, like a life hacker, a bureaucracy hacker from the beginning. Like what 16 year old figures out how to apply to, apply to college without a GED either and have them let her in and agree to, <laughs> to let her take coursework and graduate. So yeah, no, that, that's my question too. And actually I would, I would go one step further. What 16 year old knows that they don't want to finish high school, but they want to go to college. That's fascinating to me too. What, like, what do you think was pushing you in that direction? Man, I have not thought about this in a long time. Um, I remember living in Italy. So I was living in Italy the year before I started, I started college. And I remember at some point in time, kind of halfway through the year, realizing that there was something different about my interactions with people who were my own age. I think it was like a level of maturity, a level of maybe just connection to people in a very broad sense. And when I came back, I remember thinking, I don't care about the high school things. I don't care about prom. I don't care about the parties. I don't care about BS coursework. Like I knew that I wanted to study more in depth coursework around anthropology, around what was happening culturally in different places. And, you know, I think being bilingual and cross-cultural, just you take off those goggles that force you to view the world through just like one lens and instead now have multiple. And so for me, I think that that was really what it was. Like high school felt narrow. It felt like it was too short-sighted and I wanted bigger things. I needed to know more. I think it was in some ways selfishly motivated by the fact that like I wanted all the information all at once and, and you know, chemistry in high school was not going to give it to me. <laughs> That's a really important theme that we'll come back to, especially as we get into the innovation and the disruption conversation, but the ability to look at things from many different perspectives through many different lenses is something that is valuable, certainly not just in, in government, but absolutely and especially in large bureaucratic organizations where people are just accustomed to doing things a certain way. So it sounds like you've had a lifetime of training in that respect. Definitely. It's funny talking about like early life, even in the beginning. When I, you know, I talk about my mom being a doctor, she was a physician on the, on a reservation outside of Arizona, about an hour from the border. When I was little, she would take me to work with her and I would just roam the hospitals and I was like the white kid on the res just running around. I didn't understand the concept of other, but I was other. And so I think it was really from the very beginning that I had, you know, that was like the first secondary lens that I got that I could see this, I could see the world through something that was other than just my normal white America life. And it wasn't the last time that you spent you know, a, a significant time working and, and around Native Americans or Native populations. We'll get there. But first, you did graduate from the Uni University of Arizona with this degree in Italian. And you graduated at a pretty tough time frame in that 0809 time frame. What happened then? What, what did you think you were going to do with that degree? And then what was the reality? I had no idea. So 
there were a couple of interesting things that happened. The first one was that I'd actually been offered a job teaching at the University of Arizona and I, I passed it up just because I didn't, it like wasn't the right fit. And I ended up getting offered a job in one of the nonprofits in Tucson and they wanted to offer me $7 and 50 cents an hour. And I had to learn Spanish. And by the way, I had my daughter at this point, she was just born. She was almost a year. And I remember thinking nobody can live on that wage. There's no way. And I had lived in Seattle two years before that and had made good enough money bartending and working in restaurants. And so I just realized that it was time to go someplace else, that my you know tiny border town that I love was not going to be able to support me as far as income that I needed to make. And so I made this journey north to Seattle, kind of in hopes of something different and better. And it was more focused on making sure I had enough money to provide for my daughter than I was about kind of trekking through that career, right? Different set of constraints on my life than maybe most graduates have. But yeah, I moved to Seattle and spent a couple years just bartending and working in the service industry. And it was some of the best years of my life, not being focused on anything other than showing up and doing the things that I needed to do and having great community around me. And then from there, and, you know, the true spirit of connection, I ended up meeting a gentleman who was one of the original artists for the video game Halo. And he, he knew that I spoke Italian and he called me one night and he said, look, we don't have anybody to do our Italian translation. I need for you to come work over here. And I, was, I laughed and was like, well, I guess I should probably try another job. And I ended up doing that. And it was, it was fascinating. I got thrown into the world of all the different things that go into making a technical product. That is wild. So as we take you from doing Italian translations for Halo to where you ended up being contracting official officer with the Indian Health Service, that seems like another pretty big jump. And we're still in the early days of your career here. How did that go down? That was an interesting one. I got really sick. I ended up with some unknown to this day virus that just wiped me out for like 10 days. And it was kind of in that moment when I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't continue just doing what I was doing, but I had to start thinking about making some different choices for, for my life. And I ended up hearing about these jobs that had opened for the Indian Health Service. And it was fascinating because they really wanted to hire entry level people with liberal arts degrees who could think differently about the way the government's doing procurement. Like it was really this first attempt for somebody to say, we need to buy technology differently, but we don't really know what that is. And so I got really lucky that I had applied. And I think that there was one other qualified applicant who happened to not be living in Seattle at the time. And so I think I ended up getting preference just because I was located there and their original hope there were some Microsoft layoffs that year. And I think their original hope was that they would pick up people from Microsoft. I don't think that they successfully did that at all for reasons that hopefully we'll get into later. That was really when I made that jump. And that first year, I remember regretting my choice of doing that. It was really, really hard, but I think it led me down the right path as far as long-term career goes. And there's a couple of threads that we'll, that we'll need to follow here, because one is your experience as a patient in America's healthcare system, and I want to come back to that. And the other is just being kind of a, a mental, I hate to use the word athlete, but I, a mentally flexible and you know, lifelong learner, uh, what, what Carol Dweck calls having a growth mindset. 
that seems to be one of the undergirding themes of all of your experiences is just this willingness to jump in, to try something different, to have confidence in your abilities and your ability to get there that has enabled you to have a lot of your experiences. What gave you the confidence and the, and the courage to just say yes to some of this stuff? So funny. I've never, I feel like you're putting a pin in all these things in my life that I've wondered about. <laughs> you're tying it all together beautifully. <laughs> um, you know, that's interesting. I think, I think a lot of it was in a like really traditional psychological way. It was my upbringing with my family, like this push towards independence. My parents were both super hippies who were like really just about wanting, wanting their their daughters to be really independent and believe in this ability to achieve whatever we wanted. And my mom is a pretty tough woman in the sense of, I always joke about this. I would call to her and complain about something. She'd be like, life's tough, figure it out in the most like compassionate, amazing, you know, I'm not going to rescue you kind of way. And I actually really think that that, that was it. It was this push throughout my entire life to be like, if you want to try something, go for it, go do it, figure out how to be successful. And if you fail, it's fine too. And you know, that's a really important piece that a lot of people don't get an opportunity to experience. I'm very fortunate for that upbringing. And I really think that that is what, what ended up kind of bringing me to where I'm at. It's an amazing gift to, to have that kind of support from, from yeah. parent. And yeah, I, I think it's something uh, people think about a lot is, is kind of the balance between you know, drive to succeed, freedom to fail, you know, early on and, and kind of comfort with that. And it sounds like you've navigated that, that tension very well. You know, the, the other thread that I mentioned that I think merits some, some further discussion is your own experience as a, as a patient in the American health system. And I know you've written about and spoken about your own almost decade long now journey as a patient with difficult to diagnose symptoms visiting dozens of doctors and having what you're experiencing and what you're feeling dismissed as figment of your imagination or misdiagnosed as, as depression and having to advocate for yourself in a system that's fundamentally fragmented at every turn. So I, I'd love to just ask you if you're willing to share a little bit about what it feels like when you are experiencing something physical that is, it's draining, it's painful, you know, you're, you're kind of alone and afraid. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I didn't for a long time know how to put words around my experience. And it only came to me really in the last couple of months when I started seeing posts on social media or reading articles from women who shared very similar experiences. And I realized I'm not alone. And I think for me, it's isolating. It was terrifying. And it was really depressing because I felt like I had lost a lot of my potential and ability to do the things that I wanted basically by the age of 23. And when you extract that even further up into me being a problem solver and like systems wide thinker, I really also think a lot about not just my own experience, but I'm a pretty well-educated, medically savvy individual who knows how to navigate the system. And maybe one of the most depressing points for me is that I think about how many women don't have those skills and walk into a doctor's office and say, 
these are my symptoms. I don't feel good. I need for you to hear me. And they're not heard. And they're just written a prescription for Prozac or for some other antidepressant and told that they're just hysterical or depressed. And that really kind of lit a fire inside of me to think about how different our health system needs to look on a very broad scale and wanting to really spend time figuring out how you do that because it's ridiculously complex. Like our health system is insane. Um, and so my, you know, my experience has definitely kind of driven me to a place of, I, I'm hoping that this is a fire that never really burns out as far as wanting to help fix healthcare because there's not enough people that are actively focused on it, trying to say, how do we make this better? I think it's a huge part of what makes you so personally inspiring, Shannon, is that you had this experience and, and when you could have just turned inward, you didn't even stop at advocating for yourself. You turned it into a, what sounds like is now a lifelong calling of advocating for and making life better for, for others. Can you, can you talk about the process of, of what it took to go from, gosh, I'm in this really tough position to, okay, and now it's time to do something about it? Well, there's a couple of different points to push on here. So the first one is really, I think that we all have different interactions with our bodies. And so there was one day I had called my mom and I was like bawling. I'd gotten out of maybe like a sixth doctor's appointment that week. And, you know, they all were super dismissive. And my mom in her her usual way said, you know, Shani, you might have to accept that Western medicine is not going to have an answer for you right now. And I know that that's really hard to hear, but you need to find other ways to be okay. And I did. I think at that point, I realized that fighting was extracting so much energy that I had to figure out how to accept my body for what was happening in it and come to a space where I was comfortable with that. And for me, that was kind of that first turning point of being able to look at something that was bigger than myself and stop focusing on my symptoms every single day, accept them for what they were, find solace in things like yoga and acupuncture and herbs and start thinking about systemically how you make the world better for for everybody else. And when I started to inch into that space, it was it really was in the context of Indian Health Service, which by the way has for its for its failings, has some of the best uh, population health programs and ways of approaching healthcare, like very holistic as opposed to the individual fee-for-service world that we live in now. And so I grew up in a space where I thought that that was just how healthcare was typically run, that population health or this idea that I have got cradle to grave data on an individual or that I'm seeing the same providers over however many years and that my family is also seeing them and that my community also is. So if there is an issue that could potentially be broader, that it's immediately addressed within a single health system. Like, I don't think it, I don't think until my own time as a patient, I'd really recognize how disconnected the two mechanisms for delivering care were. And so having had kind of both those experiences together, I was able to really pull from them and start to think about, what are the set of things that we need in order to deliver better care? And I was lucky that when I started at the United States Digital Service, I was like, I'm not working on healthcare things while I'm here. I want to fix procurement. And there was a woman, Nina Shung, who was running the healthcare team at the time. And she is now my really dear friend. And she really just kind of scooped me up and was like, you know about these things. You should work on them. We should figure out how to fix it. And I think that in that moment, I realized... I could take all of my negative experiences and all of my knowledge and roll it into 
one positive output that could potentially change American healthcare and have an impact in a way that most people don't don't have the opportunity to have. And I did not want to squander that at all. Wow. Yeah, there's there's so much there. Everything from just the role of a little bit of serendipity and the role of good bosses, good mentors, good supervisors, kind of understanding what they've got in in their people and saying, yeah, I know you want to do procurement, but think about the impact you can have over here. Um, and also, you know, turning personal difficulty into meaningful action. You know, it's inspiring and it's motivational. And, and I am really grateful to you for sharing that. Let's talk about what actually has come out of your work at the digital service, because this is, this is a governmental success in an area that I think the American people don't always see as successful. So the first major program that is getting some attention now is Blue Button or Blue Button 2.0. And that pertains to the data around patient medical records and appointments and claims and prescriptions and all of this massive, massive amount of data that pertains to Medicare beneficiaries. How did the initiative for this Blue Button program come about? And how did you guys begin to make sense of this massive, massive problem? Yeah, maybe the theme of my life is really serendipity. So I started, I I had just taken my new job as executive director and the team was in the initial phases of working with the various parts that would come to the blue button. And it just so happened that as they're working on it, and I heard about it, I re- we started to have these conversations about the power of claims data and what's what's really in there as far as valuable information that can be used to improve care. And it's interesting because there's multiple schools of thought. And I'll tell you, when we first started on this, people that we would talk to were like, claims data doesn't do anything. Like nobody really wants it. Nobody really needs it. And that was like the very surface level response. And then as we would start to drill down, more people were like, no, yeah, we definitely want claims data, like really powerful. And in this serendipitous way, I ended up having a couple of conversations with the administrator at CMS and she in this time period had had her own incident with her family, with her husband, where she couldn't get access to his records and he had had an acute incident in an airport and needed, the physicians on the ground needed this information and it wasn't available to her. And she really made it a priority to say, as a leader in one of the largest, in the largest health insurance provider in America, how can I impact this in a positive way? And there was like this perfect storm of, we were building a tool that would empower patients to share their data with third-party applications that could enable everything from a simple check of whether or not somebody had their flu shot into whether or not they'd been even seen by a provider in the last three years. And that really intersected hard with this need from the administrator to say, how do we make this space with electronic health records and interoperability and data sharing better? I believe that we are the first FIRE, which is Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource. It's a data standard that we're the first standards-based API to share claims data with beneficiaries and we really started this push to say, what are other ways that we can use and share claims data? And about 53 million beneficiaries, which is a lot. And I think, you know, it's had a huge, it's had a huge impact both on the industry and then thinking about how data sharing happens and for beneficiaries. 
super powerful because as you said, it, it really is the single largest insurer. So they're having that massive treasure trove of data. I mean, there are, I'm sure there are many companies that would pay a lot of money for access to that data, having it in the government and being able to use it for the benefit of the American people is, yeah. is fantastic. I did want to also just mention, Shannon mentioned CMS, that's the, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in the U.S. government, so kind of the administrative overseer of, of those programs. Shannon, I know we could talk about this and certainly the, the stories and the uses of that data for a long time. I want to just quickly touch on another one of your, your major accomplishments, another major program that's come out of the digital services work with the Department of Health and Human Services, and that is the Quality Payment Program. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So the quality payment program came out of a piece of legislation called MACRA. And under MACRA, it basically has some of the biggest changes to Medicare since its inception. And the goal was really to use something called quality measures, which are ways of identifying and being able to create improvements in the quality of the delivery of care. Um, but it used quality measures to basically provide an additional way of incentivizing clinicians for not just the number of outputs, but really the outcomes in their care. And it was interesting because doctors were really scared. Health insurance is complicated, not just for us as patients, but also for providers. People have a very difficult time navigating complexities and documentation requirements, the programs where we require them to submit data. And for the Medicare program overall, the idea of this being another layer of complexity was a little scary in the sense that people were, people were concerned that providers would potentially leave the Medicare program. And the U.S. Digital Service really came in to help CMS think about delivering a product, to really think holistically about what they were doing and what kind of outcomes they wanted from the project and from the technology. And so we did everything from doing user research to help them actually name the quality payment program to building and overseeing the API that we ended up using to help with submission to really move CMS from being an organization that used a little bit of antiquated technology into using something as modern as an application programming interface to take in data from, from various other systems. And it was really powerful to see not just the technical outcome and not just the way that the program changed, but also the way that it changed CMS. It was really the start of almost a little bit of an internal revolution, inspiring people to look at technology and product differently, to, to do user research. When I think about where we were before U.S. Digital Service and before the quality payment program to where we are now, like decades ahead. They're doing so much. I mean, across the agency, I've just seen so much inspiring, awesome stuff that's happening. And that's not even projects that we're working on, just things that I think have really been triggered by seeing, you know, you can do things differently. And there are many pieces to helping folks do things differently, but perhaps the biggest is the people. Just getting different people into different situations to help them push the ball forward. The narrative around attracting technical talent, the kind of talent that you would need to be able to execute on some of these initiatives in the U.S. government, is that it's very hard to attract. It's very hard to retain. We, the U.S. government simply doesn't pay enough. So how have you and how has the digital service more broadly been able to get some of the people who are technically 
and more broadly capable of developing and executing these programs. Yeah, this is an interesting one. We know that financial incentive is an issue, right? That we can never pay the same amount or offer the same benefits that a large tech company can, but we can actually get pretty close. And so I don't always buy the argument of it just being about money. I think that the other piece, I think there's multiple other pieces. I think the first one is that we don't do a good job of selling mission in part because we don't do a great job of letting people actually work on mission. So one of the successful things that US Digital Service has done is figured out how to really motivate people by giving them a complex problem that feels like it's very mission oriented, very much like you can come in and you can help make government better, a pain point for you in your life, you have an opportunity to come and work on. And I think that that is a really, really powerful thing. And in traditional government recruiting, we don't do that. We typically give people a long list of duties that they have to do don't talk enough about the mission itself and definitely don't give people the space or the power to, to even make changes, right? Like you show up and you need to do the list of things that are on your job description. You don't get to also say, well, hey, over there, here's a really amazing opportunity to do something different that's maybe a little bit outside the scope of my job, but I could probably work on it. We tend to try to like box people in and keep them in their lanes. And so I think that that's a huge part of it is we have to figure out how to actually empower people when they show up and get out of our swim lanes. And I think the other part of it is community and creating space that feels more like what you would get if you do go to a traditional tech company. So like, can I give you computer and tools that are the things that you actually want to use? Can you be surrounded by a group of your peers who are also thinking about ways that you can make government better? Can you create space that's open where you're not sitting in a cubicle all day, but instead you're getting to work with and learn from people and apply those learnings to your job. Those are all things that seem so basic to most of us, but they don't happen. So of course there's a level of almost discouragement when you walk through the door. Yeah. So that combination of kind of motivation and putting the mission front and center and then empowerment, as you said, so giving people the ability to actually work on that thing and the tools they need and the environment that is conducive to doing so, those two things together make a, make a powerful opportunity. Definitely. You talked a little bit about creating something that may feel more like a private sector technology firm. I mean, you've worked on innovation and disruption in both sectors. What do you think is different about working on innovation inside the government and trying to quote unquote disrupt legacy systems inside the government versus outside? What lessons have you learned? Well, I think there's a couple. I think the first one is that disruption comes in all shapes and forms. So this idea that disruption has to come from, you know, the CEO, the CEO who's raised $10 million, who's now doing something really cool in the corner and has attracted a great team, I think is a totally misnomer. I have been super excited lately about this story that I keep telling people that I read about the guy who invented Flamin' Hot Cheetos and how he was a janitor at whatever company owns Flamin' Hot Cheetos and had this idea and went and I think pitched the CEO like two times on it and then Flamin' Hot Cheetos became a thing. And I think a lot about that in kind of where where things in government are not quite right is 
in the private sector, we have this opportunity to do disruption because I think people feel more empowered to just go straight to the source and be like, here's a way that I would do it better than you do or build a company or raise money. Whereas in government, we really struggle with being able to do that, both because of the hierarchical way that we've constructed our organizations. And also because I think that people just don't feel like, I think that they look at disruption as being that other bigger thing. And one of the things that I hope is slowly being instilled at CMS and across the government is that disruption comes in many shapes and forms and that there's opportunities for disruption, even on small levels, even if it's just like making a suggestion. We actually just did some stuff at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid recently where we hosted a challenge to basically have people across the agency make suggestions about ways to both make the Center for Medicare and Medicaid function better and a little bit broader. And it was really powerful to see that there's definitely a lot of people who are thinking about things, but may not have had that avenue to, to pitch them or present them before. And so, you know, I think disruption can be huge and big and massive changes, or it can be small. It can be small things or suggestions that you make that help us kind of drive forward with improving government services. And I think one of the nice things about the digital service model is the ability to come in for a bit and go back out to the private sector or elsewhere in the government and have a bit of a more fluid trajectory throughout your career. So as, as, as our time runs short here, I, I want to ask you about your time in government. I know last year you were ready to pack it up and head back to Arizona, but you decided to stay on for a little bit more time how do you think about when your time in this tour of service will be done? And how are you thinking about that decision? Yeah, I've set a really distinct bar for myself, which is I will just work all the time and do a million things at once. And when I stop being motivated to do that, or when I start feeling like I'm too tired because I'm burnt out, it's time to go. The U.S. Digital Service gives people an opportunity to come in and work really hard and serve the government and serve the American people and be part of massive change. And I don't want to stay in a position and squander somebody else's ability to come in and do a lot of the really powerful things that I've been able to do for the last couple of years. And so when I'm too tired to do the things that I think should be done in my job, somebody else should come in and do them. Impact, impact doesn't just come from one place. Government's a complex ecosystem, and if you can't be part of one section of it, there are many other ways to contribute, and you know, my journey here is not done. Well, on behalf of the American people, let me, let me just express my hope that you'll, stay, you'll remain motivated for quite some time to come. Shannon, thanks so much. Before we let you go here, are any final words or thoughts for our listeners? If you have an opportunity to show up and be part of government in some way, shape, or form, do it. There's nothing better than really understanding the way that our democracy works and the delivery of services to the American people. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us today and, and sharing so much about your really amazing journey and, and your accomplishments. And thank you also for, for all that you've done and continue to do on behalf of the country. Thank you, Noah. I appreciate it. This has been fun. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.